That was outstanding. That was outstanding. Well, let's turn together to John chapter 1. I'll get into trouble afterwards. I can see Paul's getting his, his gun loaded there. <clears throat> John chapter 1. Throughout the, throughout the history of humanity, there has been almost a uniform search manifesting itself in various ways, but ultimately aimed at seeking a utopian state, a paradisical state where, where life is peaceful, where people are united, where wars cease, where all is happiness. And throughout the whole of human history, those hopes have all been uniformly dashed. Towards the end of the 19th century, there were many romantics writing about such hopes of a utopia round the corner. One of those writing in those terms was H.G. Wells, famous author. He wrote this, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve in our lifetime unity and peace? By 1944, his optimism had turned to utter pessimism. He wrote his last book, the title of which was Mind at the End of Its Tether. The utopian dream of humanity has just never been realized. The great vision of communism, a classless society, ended with a whimper. The Third Reich, in a dark bunker beneath an obliterated Berlin. The Jews of Jesus' day had a utopian vision. They longed for the glory days that were to come. They believed in a new age, a golden age, ushered in by a messianic figure, the messianic figure, actually, the Messiah. And it was against that background of expectation, expectations, really, that had been unrealized for about 400 years since the last prophet, Malachi, had spoken, 400 years when their God had been silent, communications had ceased, and no voice could be heard, no prophet turned up, no prophetic word sounded forth. And then news began to buzz around about this figure who'd come out of the wilderness dressed in the most bizarre outfit imaginable, eating the most incredulous diet that you can even conceive, and preaching a message that penetrated into the hearts and minds of people. A figure which in secular history was far more important than the figure of Jesus. Just reading the histories of the period, you can read about them and you read about this figure, John, that we know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And the authorities in Rome are concerned about it. They're concerned about what he's doing. He's 
attracting crowds of people who are retracing the steps of Israel back to the Jordan where they had entered the Promised Land, and they're ceremonially leaving and then re-entering the Promised Land again through this act of public washing in the River Jordan. It was a reenactment in reverse of the entrance under Joshua into the Promised Land so many centuries before. And people began to talk about it. People, the buzz went around that here was, here was a, a prophet at last, after 400 silent years, almost the same amount of time as Israel was in slavery in Egypt between the time of the patriarchs and the arising of Moses. 400 years of slavery and silence. 400 years of being occupied by the Greeks and the Romans. Now a voice could be heard. A prophet had turned up on the doorsteps of the Jewish people. We've had an introduction to John the Baptist by the writer of this gospel, the Apostle John. He's told us earlier, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and we're told a significant thing about him that we're going to be looking at, I think, for a couple of weeks. We're told what kind of job he had. He was obviously a prophet, but he has a particular role as a prophet. He came, John tells us, that is, John the writer tells us, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And what John the writer, John the Apostle is saying, is that this figure, John the Baptist, appeared on the scene as the final witness of Israel as a nation to their Messiah, their Messiah whom the writer will identify as Jesus. That this this prophet is bringing to a culmination revelation that began way back in their history under Moses in the book of Genesis. And now he comes to say, all of this salvation history from Genesis to Malachi to this moment, all of this has now reached its fulfillment point, its, its zero hour. It has arrived, the time, the moment for which all the expectations of the ages has been leading. This moment has now arrived in your day, in your moment, at this hour. The Messiah has come onto the scene. That was John's message. In fact, we read this. He bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John is the last of the prophets. He is the final witness of Israel to its Messiah. And he is the first follower of Jesus. He is the first follower of Jesus the Messiah, who by his testimony leads people, leads his own followers to trust in Jesus as their Messiah. Now what we've learned so far in John chapter 1 is, in the prologue, is a kind of corporate confession of a community of people headed up by the apostles who gave us 
this book. They are testifying to what they had seen and heard, that which was from the beginning, that is, the word of life, and their own response to him. They had trusted in him as God made flesh. They've told us so far that they're quite realistic in their testimony. This was no utopian vision. This, this was in the harsh realities of life. The light shone, all right, but the light shone in the darkness. And the darkness didn't get a hold of it, didn't grasp it, neither understood it nor laid hold of it, didn't want it, didn't understand it, didn't want it. The darkness that was gripping the minds of men and women. This was the sobering reality. The age had arrived, the new age had come, but here was the matter. When God puts skin on, when God is made flesh, when God is within arm's reach of human beings, what will happen when God visits His people? Humanity, if given the chance, will murder its maker. Humanity will murder its maker. So those people that say, well, if God's there, why doesn't he come visit? God did. He came visited. And he was murdered. So far we have seen this uh, Jesus distinguished from creation. He is its creator. We've seen him associated with God. He is both face-to-face with God, distinguishable from the Father, but he is also one with the Father. He is God. And now we're going to see him distinguished from the great company of the prophets of the Hebrew Scripture, the Hebrew period. John 1.19 marks really the actual narrative story of the life of Jesus. In fact, from John 1.19 through to chapter 2, verse 11, I think we have the record of the first week, the first week of Jesus' public ministry. And uh, it is meant to echo, it is meant to echo or, or to uh, shadow the first week recorded in the book of Genesis, the first week in which God creates the heavens and the earth. Here is the creation of a new creation. Here is something brand new. And when we come to verse 19, we, we find a delegation coming from the authorities. And apparently they'd been keeping an eye on John. They'd been hearing reports of the masses of people who are going out to see him. The mass of humanity, the mass of the people of Jew, the Jews were, were believing that this was a prophet, but, but already they are suspicious. They are keeping an eye on things. And that very suspicion casts an ominous shadow forward into the future, into Jesus' own ministry. The other Gospels refer to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But here we're told it was the priests and the Levites, and then later the the Pharisees who were coming to Jesus. These priests and Levites, they worked in the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, they were specialists in their field. They were into the whole business of how you came near to God, how you approached God, the ritual purifications that were required if you were coming and what state you came in and what you had to do in order to pass all the the tests that you had to pass through in order to be ready to offer your sacrifice of praise to God. They, they They were the specialists. If you brought your sacrifice, they would check it out to make sure there were no defects. If there was a defect, you weren't allowed to offer it to God. 
If you came and you had a rash, you wouldn't be allowed to offer the sacrifice. You'd go away and wait till the rash had gone away. If you were a woman and you came during your menstrual cycle, for some reason they were able to check that out and they would send you home again. You weren't allowed to come anywhere near the temple in that condition. They were the experts on who was acceptable and who was not acceptable to come to God. That was them religiously. Politically, of course, they lived in Jerusalem. And like so many people in Jerusalem, especially in the hierarchy, in the kind of the higher echelons of Jewish society, these people were realistic. They lived in a police state. They were living in occupied territory. The Romans were not, they were not soft. I mean, they were the most powerful force in the world. They had conquered the world. All that is except Scotland. They tried and they failed. And they tried again and they failed. They, they even built a wall and the wall's demolished. You can see the demolished wall. The English, their wall's intact. <laughs> they just capitulated entirely. But the Scots were able to resist them. Anyway, that was just a little bit of real, reality and real history there thrown in. The Romans were very powerful. And the Jews were living in an occupied state, and so they were concerned. They didn't want anything that would be, appear to be subversive of Roman authority because that might shake the status quo. And so there's a sinister element behind this fact-finding mission. And in fact, John seems, he seems, he appears to be conscious of that, and he responds guardedly to their interrogation, and only gradually does he reveal his identity there seem to have been questions about the legitimacy of the, the work that John was doing and the words that, that John was saying and the very appearance of this delegation of the nation's movers and shakers turning up at his door unannounced and asking him these questions was probably intended as a show of force and a signal that the powers that be were keeping a watchful eye on him. It would be as if this evening I went home and, and several big black Vans turned up at the door and some guys with things in their ear and dark suits came knocking on my door. They're keeping their eye, maybe they're doing that anyway, keeping their eye on me. Now the language then that, that, that we find in this little section sounds like a bit of a courtroom drama. And in fact, the language that's used, the word of this is the testimony, the testimony makes us think of a courtroom. And the lesson of the section is simply this. This man, John, witnessed a good confession. He witnessed a good confession by testifying openly, testifying biblically, and testifying humbly to the Lord Jesus. Let's look at that very quickly this evening. I mean, I say quickly. You know, I don't really mean that. But anyway, let's, let's have a go. John witnessed a good confession by testifying openly. Sometimes the testimony requires you to say something negative. <laughs> These Jews sent priests from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? I think in John's gospel when it says the Jews, it doesn't mean everybody, of course. It means the authorities, mostly. And this board of inquiry is driven by a suspicion of John rather than by any desire to hear his message. They represent, as I've said, the pro- Roman establishment. 
And it's likely, too, that some of the questions they're asking were being raised by the popular, the populace as a whole. But in particular, they are worried about him rocking the boat. Now, the other thing we, we learn is that there was no unity of expectation. There was this expectation that there was this new era, this new age that was coming, but, but there was no tied down, nailed down, firmly held view. There were all kinds of views buzzing around. And so John begins to clarify. First of all, he says that he was not the Christ, that is, the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Who are you? He confessed. Notice the way in which it's placed. It sounds very convoluted in English. It's even more convoluted in Greek. He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Messiah. This word Messiah, of course, is used of a variety of different kinds of people in the Hebrew Scriptures, people who are set apart. The word means set apart, anointed, anointed to serve God and his people in a special way. A priest was Messiahed, he was anointed. A king was Messiahed, he was anointed. A prophet even was Messiahed, he was anointed to, pre to preach the word of God. But they look forward to a singular Messiah, this future figure, an anointed one sent by God to deliver, to rescue, and to rule over the people of God. Just who this Messiah was was disputed among the Jews. Some were waiting for a greater son of David. One of the prophets had even said that David would come back. Some of them thought, well, maybe David will come back from the dead. Or somebody like David will come back from there. There was a kind of argument about that. Was this going to be a Davidic king who would arise and take the throne? And I think that's probably what's on the mind of these people. And so John, in his first words, makes it very, very clear. Sometimes when you're testifying, when you're, when you're giving testimony, you have to be negative before you can be positive. And so he makes it clear. Whatever's on your mind, he said, whatever idea is in your head about what the Messiah is going to be or do or whatever, I want you to know, he's saying quite clearly, I'm not him. I'm not the one you're expecting. I am not the Christ. Notice, he, he uses the emphatic I. I am not the Christ. And his emphatic I am not stands in John's gospel in stark contrast with Jesus' repetition of the emphatic I, I am, I, I am, the way, the truth, the life. I, I am, the door. I, I am, the good shepherd. I, I am, the vine. Before Abraham was, I, I am. John's language is in stark contrast. I, I am not the Messiah. He was not the Messiah, and he was not Elijah. What are you, they asked him, Elijah? That was a reasonable question. John had come from the wilderness. Elijah was known to be wandering around in the wilderness with sunstroke and other things. Stuck in the wilderness, being fed by ravens and all kinds of weird... There were all kinds of weird stories about Elijah. And Elijah they had this picture of Elijah out in the wilderness, going around with his long hair, you know, not combed or anything, and, and, and wearing kind of rough outdoor clothes, and John the Baptist looked like Elijah. Their mental image of Elijah and John the Baptist seemed to coalesce. So it was a reasonable question to ask. And Elijah was always talking about judgment and, and even bringing down judgment. So when John talked about judgment, they thought, oh yeah, he looks like Elijah, uh, and he sounds like Elijah. 
Maybe you are Elijah. So, John, are you? Are you that figure, that prophetic figure who didn't die? Remember, he went up to heaven in a chariot. He, he, was, he, was, he was taken up into the presence of God without dying. Maybe Elijah's come back. Maybe, maybe, maybe you are really Elijah. Are you, John? And, of course, there was a promise. Malachi, that, that last prophet, Italian prophet, apparently, uh, Malachi, uh, Behold, I will send you... That's kind of an old joke. Okay. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the, great, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter judgment. There'd been a promise Elijah would come. So they're saying to John, are you he? Now we know from reading Luke's gospel that when John was born, his father said of him that he had come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But they're asking the question, are you Elijah Redivivus? Are you Elijah come back from the other world? Are you the real Elijah? John is saying, no, I'm not Elijah the way you think. I'm not actually the actual Elijah. Let's make that clear. Well, here's the third thing. He's not the prophet. The prophet was another end-time figure the Jews looked to. Moses had talked about this figure. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among his bro their brothers, I will put my words into his mouth, and he will speak them. He will speak to them all that I command him. So here's the John, John's question here. Now he's distinguishing between Elijah, who's the one that we're thinking about, and, and this prophet, the prophet. And we know from the rest of the, the New Testament, we, we know that Jesus is this prophet. That when the Father speaks from heaven at his baptism and says, This is my beloved Son, hear him, hear him. Listen to him. Why? He speaks my word. And the people said, he speaks with authority and not like the other religious leaders. Jesus comes as the great prophet of our God. But John speaks openly. He speaks clearly. He speaks publicly. He makes it a matter of public record that whatever conceptions they have in their mind, he does not fit the bill. He is not the prophet. He is not Elijah. He is not the Messiah. He is none of those. And he leaves the authorities exasperated with him. <laughs> they want to know precisely, well, if you're not any of those things, then who are you? I mean, here you are. You come along and you do all this kind of stuff that you're doing, and it's religious stuff, and it's really our business. We're the men who've got the training and the background. We're the ones who have the influence and the position and the status and the office. And here you come from nowhere, from the desert, and gather this great following and make a name for yourself so that you're well known. Outside of, outside of Judah, you're well known. Where did you come from? These, this Jerusalem delegation was made up of classic bureaucrats, authority figures, who had to see the right qualifications and the right background and the right connections before they'd acquiesce to giving anybody their credibility. John didn't fit their categories. 
These men from Jerusalem had been to the right schools and they earned the right qualifications and they had the official backing. John was already a figure of such significant stature that even a decade after the death of Jesus, you could still find followers of John the Baptist in great cities of the Greek-Roman world. He had a powerful impact, this man. But here he makes this threefold denial. I am not the Christ. And it echoes in John's gospel. This threefold confession mirrors the later threefold denial of Jesus by Simon Peter. John witnessed a good confession by testifying publicly. And he witnessed a good confession by testifying scripturally. Earlier on, John is described as a man sent from God. A man sent from God is a prophet. He's sent to bear witness to the light, that is to Jesus. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness concerning the light. And that grand opening sets the stage for John's ministry. And now after affirming who he is not, he tells them who he is. He takes them to Isaiah chapter 40 which is very helpful because we're studying Isaiah on Sunday mornings and we're going to be years before we get to chapter 40, so it's good for us just to know that there is a future ahead of us. And uh, he quotes this. He said, quote, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Jesus may be, notice this in John's gospel, Jesus may be the eternal Word who was with God, from God, and who is God, the Word made flesh, but John, this great prophet, is only a voice. Only a voice. He chooses this Isaiah passage, quite crucial really in understanding what his role and significance was. Isaiah 40 is spoken by the prophet way into the future. He's talking to people who are not yet born. He's talking to them after their exile in Babylon, and he's sounding a note of comfort to those people. And that note of comfort will mark the rest of the book. You really want to get to Isaiah 40. Once we get there, we've turned the corner. Things get better. And comfort is the hallmark of that passage as he speaks to these people about this great future. And it's from that section that the prophet, uh, that the prophet John picks, selects this quotation. Because Isaiah 40 is talking about the wilderness. It's talking about a new exodus. The last time God had been in Jerusalem, the prophet Ezekiel had seen him leave the glory cloud that symbolized the presence of God. He'd seen that glory cloud move out of the Holy of Holies, go up to the Mount of, Olive, the Mount of Olives and, and rest there outside the city, hovering at a distance from Jerusalem and the temple. And then it had exited leftward. It had gone west, east, uh, eastwards, out towards Babylon to where the exiles were. And in Isaiah 40, Isaiah in his vision sees the time come for God in his glory to return. 
And so he sends his messenger. His messenger calls the people, gets their attention, tells them the king's coming. That means you need to get things ready for him. So you need to level the mountains. You need to fill the valleys. You need to grade you need to grade the, the land so that you, you create a road, a highway for your God. Your God is coming out of the desert. He is coming to you, to your city. Get ready for Him. Get the, the Corps of Engineers involved in, in preparing the way for the coming of your God. Already in this chapter, in John chapter 1, we've seen the glory now is no longer a cloud or a fire or a cloud by day, it is in a person. The glory of God has already been revealed. They saw Jesus full of glory, full of the glory of God. We have seen His glory, glories of the only Son of the Father. The glory is coming back as a person. John is preparing the way for that person. He's calling the people to get ready for the arrival of God. That's his mission. God is coming to visit His people. Get ready. I'm only the voice. I'm telling you. Come back to the Jordan where it all began. Get to the place where you're ready for the arrival of God who's coming from the wilderness. Back to the temple in Jerusalem. One of those who comes to John is... Jesus, of course, he goes out into the desert. Do you remember? He goes into the desert. And from the desert, he comes back over the Jordan to Jerusalem. In other words, the glory is returning to the temple in the form of the one who is full of the glory of God, Jesus himself. God is on the move. That's what he's saying. And what John is saying is that all I am is the herald of this new exodus. I'm, a, I'm, I'm announcing that God is about to redeem his people from a greater captivity than that in Egypt. The desert is a good backdrop because that was the place where God first gathered his people and delivered them from Egypt. And it was there that God revealed himself to many of his chosen servants like Moses and Elijah in the past. But now God himself is going to appear. And it's no coincidence that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah. But he's the main act. He's the main act. John says he is a voice calling people to prepare the way for Jesus. And by quoting this scripture, he's laying the foundation in scriptural terms, of the gospel story. He's telling us that this great activity that God is doing in Jesus is a major, mega shift in the history of salvation. Now, this is the climactic intervention of God through His Messiah, Jesus. And John is witnessing to Him. William Wilberforce visited John Newton the slave trader, converted slave trader, uh, towards the end of his life. And before Wilberforce left, John Newton said to him, William, I want you to remember this. I'm an old man now. Life is running out, but two things I can say. I am a great sinner. 
And Jesus Christ is a great Savior. John witnessed a good confession by testifying boldly and by testifying biblically and by testifying humbly. They asked him, then why, if you're not none of these people who've got offices and big names, you're none of these, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, you're not the Christ, what are you doing then? Why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even who comes, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, because he was before me. He is testifying now to the coming of one who is greater than he is. No matter how great John is, and he's great in the secular realm, and he's great among many Jewish sects, and he is great in the eyes of the world. And Jesus says about John, no man born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist says, I can't compare to this one, this one who's coming. He is the first person to testify publicly to the eternal deity of the Lord Jesus. He was before me. He's coming after me in time, but he was before me in time. One of the things that annoyed these people was the fact that he was baptizing these folk. If you were a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, one of the things you had to do in the process was to baptize yourself, give yourself a ceremonial washing. If you've seen any movies recently, uh, there was a movie about some uh, uh, jihadi terrorists. <clears throat> and before they went to do their business, of course, they, they washed themselves ceremonially before they went and did their uh, murdered people. And if you were going to become a, a Gentile, becoming a Jew, you had to do a similar thing. You had to go through this ceremonial bathing of yourself. It was unheard of for anybody to do that to anybody else. John was doing it to other people. He was washing, purifying other people and saying, once was enough. You didn't have to do it over and over and over again. Once was enough. Once was enough. This was a radically new thing. I baptize with water. But his focus is on the one who's coming after him. The one who they don't know yet. He's still the elusive Messiah at this point. His, but his presence can be felt, even in this obscure remark. Not even at this, this stage does John know his true identity, apart from God's revelation. But he gives testimony. He says what he knows, and he says it humbly. He says, all I can do is say this. He is the main act. He is the main act. He's the real deal. He is it. He is the one. He is God's anointed. He will be all that God has promised him to be. And when he arrives, you'll know he's here. You'll know he's here. The world will know he is here. That will fade into the background. And later on, he makes that great statement, I must decrease. He must increase. 
or a witness is always someone who takes the spotlight off themselves and places the spotlight entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you this evening to leave with is Him. Him whom our souls love. He who is the fairest among 10,000. He who is the lily of the valley. He who is the bright and morning star. He who is the, the lamp that comes out of Jacob. He who is the son of David. He who is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He who is the star out of Judah. He who is the one to whom all the nations will gather. He who is the one who is the altogether lovely one. He who is the Father's beloved. He who is my soul's lover. He who is our Savior. Let your focus be on Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus, and for Your servant, John, who testified, who didn't hold back, but who made it clear He wasn't the one, but Jesus was the one. And that tonight we come to You through Him, through Jesus. We come to You through Him whom You've exalted, King of kings, Lord of lords. And we pray that tonight our hearts would go out to Him, that our affections would engage themselves with Him, that we would grow in our relationship with Him. We pray this for Your glory's sake. Amen.